Hello and welcome to the first episode of Chasing the Elephant, a podcast here on Seeking Alpha where we have contributors come on and we discuss long and short plays as well as some other macroeconomic ideas that we have think are important to discuss. My name is Russell Katz. I'm a contributor on Seeking Alpha. We also have Richard. Hi, I'm Richard. Good day to everybody. I've been with Seeking Alpha since 2011, I believe. Uh, I retired as an expatriate early uh, in 2009, been living in Brazil since then, and living off my investments, which has made me a much more focused income investor. I uh, write for Seeking Alpha, mainly in the uh, dividend income area, and have a marketplace uh, subscription service with them. And we also have Yale. Hi, um, my name is Yale Bach. Uh, I've been a Seeking Alpha contributor since I believe 2007. I own and operate a registered investment advisory service based in Las Vegas, Nevada. I've been investing my own capital since I was 22, 23 years old, over 25 years. And um, we're very excited about this this format and um, certainly welcome your feedback and participation. Excellent. Yes. So as I said, my name is Russell Katz and I will be the host um, of this podcast, Chasing the Elephant. So right off the bat, we're going to start with uh, Yale has a a very interesting um, long play for us today. We're always going to start with a contributor interview where they're either going to discuss a long or short position that they are taking. Um, So Yale, you have some very interesting ideas about the Cheesecake Factory. Can you explain the basis of your investment thesis behind it? Yeah, so um, the Cheesecake Factory is a company that um, I'm familiar with. We've owned it uh, for clients and myself for probably going on 15, 20 years. Um, And uh, the thesis behind the Cheesecake Factory is that it's a company that has outperformed the uh, broader markets over the last 20 years. It's grown for 20 years in a row. It trades at a discount to the market multiple. And it's the classic example of a company in terms of uh, Warren Buffett, as he would say, you're looking for a great company at a fair price, not a, uh, a fair company at a great price. Well, the Cheesecake Factory has proven that it's a great company. It has a debt-free balance sheet. It generates um, over $300 million of cash. It generates $200 million of free cash flow. It has a um, unique space, uh, unique position in the casual dining space. Essentially, it's the leading player in the upscale casual dining uh, space. Excuse me. It has a strong competitive position because of the nature of the locations where they're located, as well as the breadth of its um, of its menu. They have over 250 items on its menu, so you can go to the Cheesecake Factory and get nearly anything that you want. Uh, in addition, the um, the business model is somewhat unique in that um, 16% of its revenue come from cheesecakes, 13% of its revenue come from alcohol, 11% of its revenue come from takeout, and the company is quite big. It, they, they did over $2.3 billion of 
uh, revenue last year and with operating um, income of about $300 million. So the Cheesecake Factory is a company that a long-term investor could buy at the current valuation, which is less than the market multiple, stick it in its, uh, just own it. Um, it pays a 2% dividend. Uh, the company pays out all of its free cash flow and dividends and stock buybacks. It has great management and, you know, it has plenty of room for growth. So, I mean, they, they have about 200 locations. They own and operate. Uh, they operate all of those locations except 15, which are international locations, which are licensed. They, their total addressable market, they believe that they have at least space for 300 in in North America, and globally, with only 15 locations, you can only imagine what they could, what how they could expand. So you have room for growth. You have a customer um, uh, investor friendly management team that returns its free cash flow to shareholders, and it has a strong competitive position. Thank you, yeah, that's a great overview. I, I want to go into a bit more specifics now. Uh, so can you go a little into the balance sheet and more specifically? Are the majority of the restaurant's facilities owned, meaning the land and the building, or do they lease those buildings? So do they have those obligations coming up? The, the 200 of the locations are leased. They do not own the land and they do not own property in the, uh, the facilities. They lease them. Um, they have a variety of formats. If you look at the balance sheet, they have a billion three in lease obligations. Of the billion three, about 400 million are over the next three years. If you look at their total assets, 900 million dollars of their assets of the 1.3 uh, billion are in property, plant, and equipment. So what's happened happens is they put a lot of capital into opening um, and preparing the locations, and the the locations generate quite a bit of cash flow free cash flow and so ideally I don't look for companies that are this asset uh, heavy meaning you want uh, typically you want something with a lot less property plant and equipment but in this case they really um, their business model is based on investing in the um, location and um, it clearly it when you generate uh, 300 million dollars of cash a year that uh, shows you that, that it's working for them. So as far as the balance sheet goes, they have no long-term debt, which is always, um, you know, from a risk standpoint, that's, that takes financial risk off the table. Um, so that answers that question, hopefully, for you, uh, Russell. Yeah, that, that definitely did. Uh, just to clarify on that, so the only long-term debt that they do have is the lease obligations. That's right. It's the, it's the lease obligations. They don't have any uh, outstanding uh, bank loans or bank debt or uh, bonds that they've issued. Excellent. Thank you. So as a lot of uh, our listeners will know, casual dining has definitely taken a hit uh, due to changing um, consumer tastes and preferences. There's been a lot of blame on millennials and, and there's been a lot of blame that's been thrown around for it. Uh, you mentioned to me um, earlier that the Cheesecake Factory has a lot of mall-based operations, and malls have also taken a considerable hit with the overexpansion of malls as a, a retail operation. Why do you think the Cheesecake Factory is relatively immune to this? 
That's a good question. I, and I would, uh, to answer your question, I would say that, you know, the Cheesecake Factory operates in the upscale dining experience. So a lot of their locations are based in higher income demographic areas. So for example, in Las Vegas, I know for a fact that they, their Grand Lux location is in the Venetian, which is a high-end casino in the middle of the Strip. They also have a location in the Caesar, Caesars Forum Shops. They have a location up in Summerlin. They have one in uh, Green Valley Station, which is in uh, Green Valley next to the um, station's casino. So they are they uh, focus on areas where the um, the demographic is such that let's say that there is a recession, the high end is going to be hit a lot um, less hard than a, a lot of other areas. So that's one reason. And the other reason, as I talked about, is the business model. If you look at the fact that. You know, 16% of their sales comes from cheesecake, 13% of their sales comes from alcohol, 11% of their sales comes from takeout. The take, interestingly, the takeout um, percentage, only 40% of their restaurants offer takeout. So they, they kind of have a, a business model that I'm not going to say is insulated from a recession, but between the uh, the areas that they place their restaurants in and the the mix of revenue, they they have enough uh, diversity there to to hold up pretty well. I think that's my opinion. All right. So uh, just to kind of switch topics a little bit on this, uh, with been a lot of recent management scandals in Australia, we've had the Commonwealth Bank. Um, there's Uber, Wells Fargo, etc. Tell us a little bit about the management of the Cheesecake Factory. You did touch upon that a little before, but could you go a bit more in depth? Yeah. So the the founder is the CEO and chairman of the board. He's been with the company since day one and opened the first restaurant. The uh, president has been with the company for 20 years. The CFO just got hired. He comes with a lot of financial experience. He comes from Disney, and I believe FedEx, and their um, president in charge of operations has been with the company for 25 years. So their board and their people who are in their executive management um, team have all um, been through various business cycles, the ups and the downs of the recession in 2008. There's never been a hint of scandal. In fact, if you look at um, Fortune's top 100 companies there, Consistently, the Cheesecake Factory is consistently one of the voted, one of the best places to work and one of the most ethical companies. So I think, you know, if you look at in the corporate landscape in terms of the reputation of companies, when you think of the Unilevers and the Starbucks and, you know, uh, the Berkshire Hathaways, highly thought of companies, Cheesecake Factory can stand head-to-head uh, -head with all of them. It's, it's a very well-run company, have a lot of, um, a lot of experience on the management team, and um, I, I don't think that that's, I don't think scandal is, is the least of anyone's concerns here. All right, so just to, uh, to wrap up, is there any additional points that you'd like to make that you didn't have a chance to? Um, yeah, I would also um, say that, you know, Cheesecake Factory is also an interesting situation because if you look at the the, dine, the casual dining space in general, you know, merger and acquisition activity started a 
started to maybe maybe percolate um, earlier this week. Ruby Tuesdays got taken private um, with a, from a private equity company, and then if you if you just think of of the landscape with um, the Cheesecake Factory, it's about a two point three billion dollar company. I was looking at a company today which might you know just throwing it out there something like a Bloomin' Brands which has the Outback and it's got um, um, all the Outback um, properties. If you put those two together, you would have the high end, you have, you'd have the medium high end. Or you take something like a Brinker, which has, uh, I believe, chilies and the Olive Garden. So it is very possible that Cheesecake Factory might be an acquirer, or it could be something that you know might merge. Now they have a couple of, of, of investments that are emerging brands that they call them. One is a Italian brand, and another one is a fresh salad and a wraps brand. But um, I would also so merger and acquisition activity for them is a possibility. And then the other thing is that their international possibilities are quite quite large. I mean, they've got a licensee in China. One in China, that licensee has the ability to, to grow those locations in all of Southeast Asia, and they're in China. And then you've got a licensee in, in Mexico, only one location. They have a chance to grow their operation in South America. You have a licensee, I believe, in um, Abu Dhabi. Again, they could grow their operations in the Middle East. So the Cheesecake Factory is a growth company, right? But it, it, the growth is not going to be you know, 25% a year, but the growth is going to take place with improvements in operations, license locations, opening individual locations. I believe they're going to open eight this year and uh, four license locations. So it should grow probably, I would say, eight, call it five, eight, 10% a year, and you should consistently get that. And so that's why it's attractive at this price. And so that I think that's a pretty good summation there. Thank you, Yale, for uh, that very interesting investment thesis about the Cheesecake Factory. So now we're going to move on to what, uh, what we like to call the roundtable discussion, where we have Richard and Yale and myself are going to all discuss um, Yale's pitch. And then we're also going to discuss the Fed meeting and the possibility and implications of interest rates um, going up. So with, with that said, uh, Richard, would you like to start us off? Yes, thank you, Russell. I uh, want to thank Yale for bringing uh, Cheesecake Factory to my attention. I haven't looked at it in many years. Uh, as I say, these days, my focus for myself and my, uh, my readers is on dividend income. It turns out cake is an excellent uh, dividend income producer, although it's got a short history in that. I've looked at their valuations on cake from several different uh, aspects. I do have a, a dividend model uh, which is, is focused on historical yield rate that I call YDP because yield does equal dividend divided by price. Uh, given the YDP valuation is uh, actually the highest of my valuations, says the Dividend stream should be valued at $77.33 currently. That's based on a 1.5%, 1.50% annual yield rate as a historical trend. Uh, over the years, that's what uh, 
investors in cake have demanded uh, or priced the uh, dividend yield at. The uh, price-earnings ratio, a very common uh, valuation metric, uh, shows it currently valued at $61 a share. Price sales, another common metric, $50.70 a share. And price operating cash flow, uh, cash flow being the uh, the engine that feeds dividends, is uh, 52.90 per share. So a lot of those cluster in the uh, towards the mid 50 range, say 55 dollars a share, uh, or even room above that. I also think uh, you start to touch on Yale some of those uh, those strengths that Cheesecake Factory could leverage going forward. I think you make a very good point there. They certainly have room for explosive growth uh, through franchising. Uh, they have a very strong uh, brand name and a very rigorous model of how the stores are operated with a, a good training program and, and very strong uniform standards to how things are done and the quality that goes out onto the tables. Uh, they could also uh, take their expertise in that restaurant management, knowing how to open uh, uh, a store and bring in the staff, train them, and make sure they turn out consistent quality. That's a, uh, a talent they could bring to some of the struggling uh, restaurant uh, brands in the uh, in the even in the same space. Uh, companies like Bob Evans. Uh, finally, I think they uh, they have plenty of room with their broad footprint to uh, to leverage their supply chains again, both uh, in their growth uh, through a franchising model or uh, by bringing in more affiliated companies, as you mentioned, uh, either through uh, acquisition or by being acquired. So I think uh, they're trading at a real bargain price right now. I uh, certainly am attracted to it, uh, other than their short dividend history, which tends to be. Uh, outside of uh, of my normal targeting, but uh, but on some money on some funds that have a little bit more risk tolerance, uh, it's an excellent target. I, I do have a. Um, uh, I generally like to take uh, good dividend companies and boost their uh, cash uh, income and yield uh, while reducing but never eliminating market risk uh, through using a covered option, uh, writing targets with the strike prices based on the fair value so that you're being paid to do exactly what you do anyway uh, at the uh, to uh, enter hold and exit at the same target prices you would do simply based on value investing on that basis i would point out a couple of ideas uh, the uh, for those who don't own the company currently and because we are at frothy market highs uh, these days, a conservative approach would be to write cash covered puts on the 28 day, uh, November 17th, 17, uh, $40 strike at uh, 57 cent premium. This generates an annualized yield rate of 17.71%. Uh, for those who do own the stock already, they could write covered calls uh, at the, uh, again, using the same 11, 17, 17, uh, contract date uh, for a $50 strike, which is, has the current $0.67 cent, uh, premium, option premium, which uh, provides a 20.29% uh, annualized yield rate uh, on the premium. The dividend, of course, since you own the shares, um, your dividend harvest is another 2.65% annual rate, bringing your total uh, yield rate uh, to a 
very healthy 22.94% annualized uh, yield. Thanks for that, uh, the, the options, uh, Richard. I got to say that that's very interesting. I, I, uh, I've just started to play around with options myself. Um, it's, it's definitely a great way to hedge. Uh, on, a, on, the, uh, on the note of, uh, of cake, I thought it was uh, very interesting that um, percentage of their different industries that they, that they use. You were talking about the cake. So, so not industries, but their, their profit breakdown. The cake was of uh, 16% cheesecake, and that's that's definitely something that a lot of people order that isn't necessarily strictly in uh, a meal capacity. You could find you find that people would order cheesecake who aren't necessarily going to then sit down for a meal. So that's not something you have to worry as much um, being hit as uh, as casual dining is. I I do think it is worth mentioning that. Uh, wow, I, I thought you brought up some very good points. Um, in regards to why it is uh, um, kind of immune to the, the downturn we've recently seen. I, I think it's definitely something to watch. I think it's definitely a great company. I thought you made an excellent pitch for it. Uh, and it, it's something that hasn't been on my radar before and is definitely now. But I, I definitely um, am going to w- continue to watch to see if it, you get, it gets affected by, um, by the downturn that we've been seeing. The interesting thing about Cheesecake also is that their unit volumes over the last three years have, have grown. Um, they went from, I think three years ago it was 10.5 million, last, uh, two years ago it was 10.6 million, and last year it was 10.7 million per unit that they, in terms of sales. So um, now in the casual dining space, a lot of these companies are measured by same store sales. And that's kind of why they, um, have gotten hit. I mean, the stock price is down 40% off the high. I mean, it's trading at, at literally a 10-year low or in that range. And also with respect to the dividend, I would say, you know, they, institu- they instituted the dividend, I think, four years ago. It's already doubled. And last year, they, they raised it um, 20%. So this is a situation where this is not a a stagnant company. This is a growing entity, which is, you know, you want companies that are going to grow. So I think that it has a lot of merit and I appreciate uh, Richard um, adding in the option uh, aspect of it. And, you know, I, that's part of investing is trying to find these kinds of situations. Yeah. So the, thank you for that Yale and Richard, uh, that, that feedback. And uh, once again, that options was quite fascinating. I was, very interested in that. Uh, so now we're going we're gonna to move on to the, the Fed meeting and the possibility of rates going up. So, so a bit of background for our listeners. We've had record low interest rates uh, with the Fed um, recently, and there's, we've seen some rise. And I just want to clarify that when we're talking about rates going up, we're not talking about them immediately going or in a year or two years going to pre-crisis levels. We're not talking about huge interest rate movements. But even a small movement can have a substantial impact on the, uh, the market. So with that, Yale, would you like to start us off on that? Sure. So if you look at um, what's been coming out of the Fed and the Federal Reserve Board meetings and the comments from Mrs. Yellen, um, it's pretty much baked into the cake that they're going to raise by 25 basis points in December. And then there is um, the issue of uh, next year, which they're talking about maybe raising three three times in um, 2018. 
Now, all of that is clearly contingent upon who Mr. Trump is going to nominate for uh, the Federal Reserve chair in, I believe, uh, February. And he's got his list down to five, and they're talking about, I believe, a guy named Ta uh, John Taylor from Stanford, and then uh, Kevin Walsh, who was a Federal Reserve governor. Um, so some of that is contingent upon, you know, who becomes the Fed chair and then what kind of policy stance they may take. There's also, you know, it could happen that Mrs. Yellen um, retains her, her, uh, her uh, head of the Fed. As, so, you know, we'll see. Um, my own opinion is, is that I think um, Mr. Trump is going to get rid of Mrs. Yellen and that uh, Mr. Taylor will wind up being the um, head of the Federal Reserve Board. And you're going to see a different kind of Fed. And at that point, then we, you know, you, you start it, start looking at it with a completely different view. But I think December is pretty much baked in the cake. And as of right now, they're looking at maybe three times in 18. That's that's the way I see it. As far as the uh, impact on what happens in markets, I think clearly uh, any kind of interest rate increase is going to help the perception of investors toward uh, the, the large banks. And that's why financials have been bid up over the last um, few months. But that's I think that's pretty much baked in. And uh, there you go. Yeah, I think you brought up a, a lot a lot of good points there, uh, there, Yale. I, I think that one of the one of the important things to uh, to keep in mind is, and as I mentioned before, is that this is a multi-year process, as as you said. We're we're not talking about a an, an extreme increase in in interest rates over a short period of time at all, uh, and it definitely does matter um, who the the Fed chair uh, who the Fed chair is next. Um, I mean, Trump has been talking about on the campaign trail and he, he has mentioned as, as president that um, he would like to see rates go up and go up quicker. So uh, I, I, I'm, I'd be curious to see who he nominates and if, if that does reflect that, I, I think it probably will reflect that viewpoint. It would be interesting to see if he retains Yellen. Uh, based on comments that he's made in the past, I, I, I find that uh, a bit hard to believe um, because he, he has been quite critical of, of her. And, and I do think that uh, the, the Fed has justifiably um, gotten nervous about how long they've waited to raise rates. Uh, it's definitely, um, it, it definitely can have a significant uh, negative impact if they have to raise them quickly at once and then have to just drop them immediately, uh, as we saw in, in the late 19, um, 1900s, I believe it was around 1980s, that we saw that, that happen. So uh, it, it's, a, it's a very tricky game. And I, I think that the, the Fed definitely has to start ra uh, continue to raise, and, and I, I definitely think they will. I think we we're in for some surprises. I do think Yellen is out. Uh, it's hard to imagine she'll uh, she will remain uh, as Trump's choice. Uh, I believe uh, there's always a lot swirling around the questions of Fed's uh, management of interest rates. Uh, and the uh, mystery that everybody keeps asking for years now, uh, how come interest rates are delinking from the markets? Uh, is, is the Fed telegraphing clearly enough that markets are anticipating it? Uh, and therefore, we're not seeing market shocks uh, on the rate increases. Uh, perhaps that's some of it, but I don't think that's the whole picture. Uh, in fact, uh, the markets are delinked from interest rates. Uh, the uh, 
the interest rates have always had a long lag time in actually affecting economic output. Uh, also, uh, interest rates used to mainly control uh, industry borrowing, uh, Wall Street borrowing, uh, to fund expansions. You need demand for expansions unless there's de- uh, unless you absorb all existing production capacity and need to expand plant through capital investment. You can tighten money or loosen money if if industry doesn't need it. It's not going to be borrowed, and the rates are meaningless. Well, not totally meaningless, but but are very low in relevance to, to driving the economy. What we see today is a tool that is not being used wisely as a as a faster and more discreet management of uh, the economy is the Fed's giant uh, balance sheet. And of course, uh, there's a lot of discussion about uh, how the the Fed unwinds all these assets on the books. Frankly, I think that is going to be the tool for the coming decades that the Fed uses to guide the economy is the which segments of their balance sheet they unwind and at what pace uh, in relation to a a feedback loop with the the general economy and their goals uh, of growth control and stimulus. Uh, I think uh, Trump's likely to pick somebody who understands that. I hope he does, which means he may very well come out of uh, investment banking. I I think you brought up a a very interesting point there, Richard, which I would uh, like us to quickly uh, uh, go over, which was uh, that the markets anticipating Janet uh, Yellen's remarks or, or any of the Fed shares. So I think what, uh, what, what it has to do with that is I think that's a very valid point because the Fed minutes uh, and what, whatever they produce and whatever they say is so much more heavily scrutinized immediately than it ever has been before. And that has a lot to do with the availability of the, that information on the Internet and the uh, ability of, um, for bots, for these, uh, for these electronic traders to, uh, to read the information better and look for keywords and phrases. Uh, so I, I definitely think that's a very interesting uh, point that you, that you made. Yes, uh, both the availability of information and, and its uh, codified application and things like bots, uh, and also the Fed themselves uh, have uh, evolved in their commitment to speak clearer and to telegraph their intents. Uh, and they, they are doing a much better job of that. Uh, uh, um, going back to Yale's comments about uh, anticipating three hikes next year, uh, I don't think that will happen. 2018 is a midterm election year, and the Fed traditionally uh, tries to avoid rattling the economy uh, and having any look of possible politics in it uh, during election years. So I think the second half of 2018 uh is going to be a very soft hand by the Fed. Uh, we may see one, two hikes during the first half, but I think that's probably going to be it unless there's a, a very overheated economy, in which case they may uh, bump interest rates a bit more, or, uh, or again, they may just decide to unwind their uh, balance sheet a little more aggressively to uh, dampen trends. Yeah, would you like to uh, respond to that a little bit? I was just going to say that I think that the macroeconomic numbers and the political dynamics of interest rates are still going to be related 
and influenced by you know who who's in charge of the fed and and i think richard is right i think that the fed has a bloated balance sheet and um the issue has uh is not just for the fed but it's also all over the world with global central banks is how do you unwind and manage those balance sheets so that you can dampen the effect of quantitative easing which has taken place over the last 10 years and so what's going to happen is is um, the fed is going to try to ease slowly ease interest rates up as gradually as possible and the other central banks are going to try and follow suit you know in japan in uh, in europe because the the central banks influence on markets and with bond yields in some cases being negative you know that is not a normal situation and really the central bankers they don't want that to to last any longer than it has to and some of that gets into you know what's really happening is deflation the problem or are we now going to start to have inflation so so as you know the fed states they're data dependent they're looking at the data and they they are trying to determine policy based on the all the information that they get so you know we'll see i mean it's uh, as an investor I, I think you i think you not that you have to forget about it but i think you have to try and find situations that that are good businesses and because this kind of stuff it, it's it's you know a lot of forecasters have gotten broke trying to pre- predict macroeconomics you know so we'll see uh, with that, we're going to switch to our last segment, which uh, we call the breakdown. And basically, just a quick overview of the breakdown. What we'd like to do is uh, each contributor, including myself, will um, say about one issue and just give a brief summary of that issue that they really are have that they are focusing on for the coming week or the past week. It can be really anything related to finance. So, with that, Richard, would you like to start us off? Sure. Thanks, Russell. To me, the elephant in the room uh, this coming week and and has been present for quite some time now as markets keep reaching new highs is when is the correction coming? We have a huge unplatformed, unplateaued rise in the markets uh, for a long time now, and we need a correction. Um, That's something I'm continuing to watch. It's something that... uh, through my uh, investing strategy, engineered income investing, we're not too concerned about because we are value focused. So, um, so we're looking at in, more at individual equities rather than markets in general. And um, and we have our, our three strategies to uh, when when things are in an overpriced bubble, we sell cash covered puts uh, at the price we're willing to enter at below fair value when we can get a bargain and we get paid to wait. When we own things, we harvest dividends and and uh, and generate extra yield off covered calls. And when things rise into a bubble, uh, they're ultimately called away from us at our bubble strike prices, and we can begin that whole cycle again. Obviously, I uh, with frothy market tops, I'm uh, biased towards uh, the puts right now. Uh, but correction, correction is what uh, people need to be thinking about and having a plan in place for it. 
Excellent. Uh, Yale, what about you? Um, I'm monitoring corporate earnings every day. That's uh, the focus. Um, let's see. Tomorrow it's going to be GE and whether or not GE decides to cut its dividend. And um, uh, the last few days, you um, you know, we've, we've gotten earnings reports and they're going to keep streaming in. Um, over the next couple of weeks, they're going to come hot and heavy. You'll see Apple over the next few weeks. Um, so I would say that's the focus for me is corporate earnings. How do they compare to estimates? And so far, the market reaction has been quite good um, with the bank earnings were, were solid. And so um, that that forms the um, the market um, psychology is what are the earnings like? And how, do, how does the market react earnings? This, this morning was actually Unilever um, had a soft note. So that's my focus. You got earnings season fever? Yeah, well, it's not fever. It's just, you know, you, you have to, the market will react based on what those earnings, how they come through. And um, that's how it always is. And, you know, you, you, add, you throw in the politics, like today was um, Catalonia issue with Spain. And Unilever had a had a, a soft report, or they guided soft. So those things certainly affect the market. Although today it, it bounced back pretty nicely. So yes, that's the the focus. Yeah, my focus is on the uh, the Chinese uh, party's uh, five year Congress, and I'm I'm watching that pretty closely. I think it will be very interesting, uh, especially to see if the 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 president of China gains, uh, which I personally think he's going to lay down the framework for um, an unprecedented third term uh, and, and to see him consolidate power. And I think we can, are going to get some information on the direction that the party is going to uh, be heading, uh, especially with the Belts and Roads initiative. And, um, the, and we might see something on defense with North Korea. So I'm excited to... Uh, to see the direction that the Communist Party will be going of China. So with that, thank you everybody for tuning in to Chasing the Elephant. Once again, I'm Russell Katz. We have Yale Bach and we have Richard Berger. Stay tuned for the disclaimer. Thank you for tuning in to the disclaimer. Investing money in capital markets involves risk and could result in losing money. While the people on this podcast express their own opinions, only you can determine if a specific investment is right for your portfolio. You should always do your own research before buying or selling any investment. Remember, past performance is no guarantee of future results. Future results are likely to be different from past performance. All equity portfolios involve risk and may lose money. One should research any investment and make sure it is suitable with your objectives, risk tolerance, risk profile, liquidity concerns, tax situation, and anything else pertinent to your financial situation. Also, attaining or holding the CFA credential in no way suggests performance will be superior than a market index or market return. While this podcast is exclusive to Seeking Alpha, we are no, in no way direct employees of Seeking Alpha, and we are not directly endorsed by Seeking Alpha. Thank you.